As I look as our, at our gathering this morning, I realize a number of us are uh, sick and not able to be here. Um, even Megan this morning was not able to uh, show up and so grateful for Raina for stepping in last minute to play the piano. Uh, but life on this earth is, uh, is messy. It's messy because uh, we are living life uh, in a creation that has been corrupted uh, by sin. Uh, the curse of sin is upon all this creation. And we, we feel the effects of that in various ways, whether it's uh, being announced or being told that uh, your mother passed away this week, like Kim got that news, whether it's other sickness that comes upon us, uh, whether that sickness is more serious and uh, difficult to work through, or it's just uh, a quick few days of not feeling well, the reality is that uh, life in, on this earth, in this creation, is, is messy. Thinking through the, the, the reality of uh, sweet experiences coming to an end and having to say goodbyes like we are from our sister Josie. Uh, life on this earth, uh, as beautiful as it is, it's also messy. But the reason why it's messy is because it all goes back to the, the reality, the, the entrance, the the, the coming of, of sin into our world that has changed the way we live this life, the way we experience this creation. In our society, corrupted as it is by the, the virus of sin, in our society there's a, a great skill that we appreciate and encourage others to have and to, to grow in. Uh, that particular skill that I'm referring to is the skill of problem solving. We love when people have the ability to find solutions to problems. We teach our kids to grow in that. As we become adults, we grow in that. When we don't grow in that, we, we f- nudge each other. And those who do it really well, who know how to find solutions to problems, just have a, a way of advancing quicker through jobs and life and, and so forth. Knowing how to get out of a difficult situation, how to find a solution, is a great ability to have. But when we try to find a solution to the sinful issues and problems that we experience and often deal with, Uh, we realize fairly quickly that our solutions to the problems of sin often are not as easily seen and discovered. When we try to deal with sin and find a solution to some sin issue and sin problem, uh, we we become aware that sin oftentimes is, is more like honey dripping where you don't want it to drip. And if you just take a paper towel trying to wipe it off, you realize, oh, I'm creating more of a mess than really trying to fix and find a solution to this problem. Everything sin touches becomes sticky, messy, and complicated. And trying to fix it as we oftentimes go into the fix-it mode, often adds layers of new difficulty to it. Sin is messy. Sin is sticky. You don't get rid of it easily. And often, in our attempts to deal with sinful situations, we can respond with the same human determination, let's get it fixed. Human wisdom to just find a quick solution that that gets us out of the trouble, and we realize that when we put in that gear of human determination, human fixing, and apply that to sin issues and sin problems, we actually dig ourselves in a bigger hole. Do human solutions and human fixes, do they work well on sin issues and sin problems? Well, let's open God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, We'll be reading the entire chapter as uh, we are working our way through the book of uh, 2 Samuel. 
And if you are new to us, if you're visiting with us, we are working our way through this book. Uh, I was encouraged last night uh, when Josie reminded me that she got saved when I was preaching through the book of Isaiah. And that just somebody's memory would be sort of planted and, and put a, a pin uh, which book of the Bible she, I was preaching through and the Lord worked salvation in someone's life. That's just so encouraging to me to think through. I pray that if you're new to our church uh, or if you've been around our church for a while and the Lord has not yet worked his salvation in your heart, that the Lord might do something like that uh, even as we work through the book of 2 Samuel. This morning we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 14. This is God's word for us this morning. Now Joab, the son of Zeriah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab Put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead and your servant had two sons and they quarreled with one another in the field. Uh, There was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor rendment on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please, let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away, and he will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest, for my lord, the king, is like the angel of God, to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything, I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. Uh, The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, One cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. 
But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant you this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he, it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. They were born to Absalom, three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come to get from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. And Joab went to the king and told him. And he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You're wondering, what is he going to say from this passage? Well, let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Would you pray? Father, you have revealed these words to us. They are part of your uh, revelation of telling us of how you have dealt with your people and of how your people have dealt with you and with one another. Father, please help me preach this word and please help us hear it so that your word among us may be fruitful, so that the purposes that you have with this chapter uh, may be found uh, itched in and engraved in our hearts through the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. For the past several weeks, uh, we have been in a portion of Second Samuel that has looked at the dark side of David's life. Uh, starting with chapter 11, uh, the narrative of Second Samuel has taken a, a significant nosedive. Uh, the corruption of David's sin in chapter 11 led to Nathan confronting David of his sin, leading to chapter 13 when David's children began showing the signs, the consequences, the fruit of David's sin as David's own children began acting sinfully and, and in pretending ways. And we've seen last week the pretense of sin. This chapter, chapter 14, starts with a picture of some of the consequences of what happened in chapter 13 as a result of, of the sin that just multiplied and mushroomed in David's family. Nathan, uh, I'm sorry, Absalom is away from David. That's how the chapter starts. And the chapter ends with a picture of their reunification. Father-son reunited. It seems at first that things are moving in a good direction. Moving forward. 
it seems like Absalom, at the end of this chapter, is getting restored and back with his father. But a closer look at this chapter shows that dealing with the effects of sin is actually more messy and more sticky than it first appears. The story has three major plans that are being employed by the characters in this chapter to deal with the aftermath of the sin that we've talked about in the previous chapter. Joab, David, and Absalom each put on the let's fix it mode to try to deal with the aftermath of of the sin issues that have developed in the previous chapter. Uh, These are men who are determined. There's something about guys, I'm not sure what it is, but there's something about guys that quickly go into the let's fix it mode. Wives, you know what I'm talking about? When you want to talk to your husband and you don't want him to fix something, you just want him to listen and understand what you're going through. And guys... We go so quickly into the ditch by trying to put on the let's fix it hat, be determined, find a solution, get out of this mess as quickly as possible. In this chapter, the three male characters each put on the let's fix it hat. We see in them the instinct to resolve crises quickly, wisely, In human ways. And what we see in this chapter is that some of these fix-it plans work. Work for the short run. At the end of the day, I mean, David came to kiss Absalom at the end of the chapter. My goodness, that just seems like a, a happy end. But if we kept reading the rest of the story, we realize that what seems to be a Uh, A sweet, uh, fix-it-that-works situation, actually, in the long run, it does not work. So this chapter is teaching us through the stories it tells. It teaches us this lesson that I want us to hear and, and, and let it sink into our hearts. Human solutions to sin problems are short-lived. Human solutions to sin problems are short-lived. Lived, And if any of us think that they work for the long haul, uh, this chapter will show us in, in story form how these solutions actually do not work. We're going to see in each of these characters, David, jo- I mean Joab, De- uh, David, and, and Absalom, we're going to see some patterns of plans that may seem to work, but they will prove not to in the long run. The clever plan. That's Joab's plan, the clever plan, the facade plan, it's going to be David's plan, and the forceful plan, it's going to be Absalom's plan. The clever plan, Joab. Uh, The clever plan is designed by the uh, chief of the army, of David. There's an important translation issue in verse 1. Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. The impression from this verse, if we just read it in the ESV as as it's written for us, the impression is that David's heart was positively inclined towards Absalom. And that positive impression may be influenced also by the last verse of chapter 13, where it speaks about longing, the king's heart longed for Absalom. But the Hebrew text actually does not have a verb in in verse 1. There's no verb. And even the verse, the verb in verse in the previous verse of the verse 39 of chapter 13, even that verse could actually be interpreted in a negative light. It's not necessarily a positive longing for. It could be being set against. Personally, I am persuaded more by the interpretation that David's heart was set on Absalom in a negative way, not positive way. This Interpretation is, I think, makes sense of the reality that had David's heart been set positively, longing for Absalom, there was no need for Joab to come up with this clever plan 
to try to convince David to change his actions. And even when David begins acting and brings Absalom back, how do we interpret the fact that David longed to see Absalom, if it was a positive longing, and then when he shows up to Jerusalem, David does not let him come into his presence. So I'm convinced that actually verse 1 sets this story, this chapter, uh, with telling us that David's heart was set on Absalom. And actually the negative, the, the, te- the sense of that being set on Absalom is, is a negative, set against, set opposed. So Joab understands that this, things are not right with Dave, between David and Absalom, between the father and the son. And Joab wants to change the broken relationship between these two men. Uh, we know that because at the end of the story, the woman will ex- who will be exposed, she will reveal of Joab's intention of all of this. Just look with me at verse 20. She says, finally, in order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. Joab sought to trap David in his own judgments in others or on others in order to twist his hand and push him to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. So what is the plan that Joab has? He's putting on his fixed mode, trying to find a, uh, a solution. And the solution, the plan he has is to hire the help of a woman, a woman from Tekoa. Notice what characterizes this woman. In verse 2, what's highlighted about her? Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her and gave her instructions. The word wise used here for this woman is the same word that was used about uh, Jonadab in chapter 13 when uh, Amnon asked for advice from his cousin, and the Bible says, and Jonadab was a crafty man. Same word. It's interesting how in these two chapters, uh, the, theme of wit- uh, the theme of wisdom shows up um, and connects these chapters together. Not only that, but, uh, but this wisdom that Joab wants to employ is not entirely a very transparent wisdom. We get a fishy feel about Joab's fix-it plans when he asks this, quote, wise woman to pretend to be someone different than she actually is. To pretend a different reality. Uh, Same strategy that Jonadab used in chapter 13 when he encouraged Amnon to pretend like he's sick. Well, friends, human wisdom. Human wisdom in coming up with solutions to sin problems. Human wisdom will often lead you to try to pretend to be something different than you are. Often it prefers the path of, of pretense, as we saw last week as well, pretending to intentionally give a different impression than reality. And in this way, human wisdom is so different than God's wisdom, who wants us to take the path of transparency, who wants us to take the path of, of no hiding. And we want to encourage one another in that kind of approach, in that kind of divine, godly wisdom, not the human wisdom that just finds ways to move ahead uh, with little uh, risk. Joab told the woman the words that she was to deliver to the king. So she carried out the fabricated story that her husband died and that one of her two sons killed another because of a fight that they had. And now her family is seeking to kill the the last remaining alive son uh, because of the murder that he committed and uh, thus leave her with no heir for the family and no name for the family. So she asked David to protect the life of her son, of this fabricated son. David immediately offers to give orders to protect the woman's son. And uh, in the story, the woman persists three times on getting David to reaffirm his pledge to uh, to protect her son. So David 
had to assure this woman three times, hey, your, your son will be safe. I'll make sure that no one hurts him. Not a hair of his head will fall down as the Lord lives. David repeats that uh, of oath to the woman. And after David makes that promise three times, the woman turns the tables on David. She exposes the application from her story and how her story actually applies to David's situation. We see that in verses 12 to 17. The woman accuses David of doing the very opposite in his own family and thus convicting himself of a double standard. Uh, the accusation this woman brings against David is that he's actually acting against the people of God. Look at verse 13. The woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home. Who's the banished one? Absalom. His name is not mentioned at this point, but everyone knows that this is who, who's, who's being talked about. Uh, remember, these were Joab's words. In Joab's mind, leaving things unreconciled with a son who would be next in line on the throne. See, Amnon was David's firstborn. Now that Amnon is dead, the kingdom would naturally go to the second son. And from early in the book of Samuel, in, uh, 2 Samuel, we know that the second son born to David was Absalom. So Joab is thinking like a military leader, as a politician, thinking through strategic things. Uh, hey, what will happen uh, to the kingdom that David has if the guy who is to succeed David is exiled and not being brought back? And there's a sense in which you can understand, humanly speaking, Joab is thinking, this will turn out into a big mess for the people of God. If David doesn't do something and fixes this relationship between him and his son, this could play out really bad for the whole people of God. So Joab puts these words in the woman's mouth to, to convict David. Hey, David, when you are acting this way towards your son Absalom and you let him be away and you're not bringing him back, you're not working this restoration back, you are actually acting in ways that could hurt the well-being and the future stability of the people of God. In Joab's mind, the stability of the kingdom is in David's hands. And he says, David is acting poorly. I need to help him. So in Joab's mind is, I need to do something so that the stability of God's kingdom among his people will be safe. Joab did not realize that actually the stability of God's kingdom among his people is very secure with God himself. God can do his plans as he wishes. But Joab puts on the fix-it mode and says, let's get these two guys back together, reconciled, and, uh, and, and if we need to do a little bit of nudging and manipulating and uh, playing some clever plans, let's do that to get it done. Joab is the guy who knows how to get things done. Perhaps the most convic convincing line in this woman's description uh, is actually a very true sentence about God. Not all the things she says about God are absolutely true. They need some qualifiers. Uh, for example, she says that, that God would, would not, is not a God who takes life away. Well, that's not entirely true, and these words are opposite of what Hannah spoke about God in, back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. So the woman here is a little bit playing sort of the, the biblical truth that make her case, even though she doesn't fully describe all of, of who the Lord is. But there's one true statement that she makes about the Lord. It's in verse 14. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. This is so true. God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Friends, because of our sin, we all have been separated from God. 
But God, in his love, did not let this separation be the last word. That w- there would be a means for all of us who have been separated from God to be brought back to God. He's a God who brings home those who have been banished from his presence. There's something really sweet in this one sentence that she gives to David uh, to convince him to be like God in the way he's treating his son. Oh, friends, if you feel like an outcast, if you feel like you've been too far for too long from God, God is a God who sent his own son, gave his son, so that people who have been put out of his presence from as early as a garden of Eden could be brought back into his presence. This is the amazing God we serve. This is the amazing God we proclaim. And if you have not yet responded to him and turned to him, uh, we want to encourage you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. This woman presents this true picture about God to try to get David to change. But then, after speaking about God, she reverts back to her pretending story. Uh, bringing back the cause of her family. In doing so, she's trying to continue the cover-up story. She closes her speech with a big flattery. Notice she, what she says about David in verse 17. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Now, again, remember, these are Joab's words put in this woman's mouth. Joab sent this woman to David to convict him of his inability to discern good and evil and came up with this pretense story, this clever story, to try to trap David in his own judgments against her situation or in her situation so that he would be convicted about the way he's treating his own son. The very reason uh, for all this is because David's own wisdom has not played out very well here. So she uses flattery to make David feel good about himself. Human wisdom will often uh, employ such tactics. Flattery is when you say things to someone else's face that you could not say behind his back. Flattery is the things you say to someone's face that you could not say behind his back. You don't really believe those words about the person, but you say them to their face to entreat yourself to someone else. Friends, integrity of speech calls for a sober tongue. It calls for a, uh, an honest tongue. Even when we want to encourage others, we should not exaggerate things about others just because we want to get on their good side. David finally gets a clue that this whole situation might be a fabrication. So after uh, her words are done, uh, David asks plainly if Joab sent her to the king. And the woman feels caught. She realizes, oops, actually this guy truly knows something. She feels, she feels caught, so she finally gives up and says, yes, Joab sent me. Joab put the words in my mouth. Actually, I'll tell you why he put these words in my mouth. He put these words in my mouth because he wanted to change the course of things with you. Human wisdom and the cover-up of, 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 uh, of clever plans will be exposed in the end. It cannot remain pretending forever. Cover-up and manipulations will be exposed. So, friends, don't work through pretending. Hiding things and manipulating plans and emotions in someone else will get exposed. Surprisingly, though, as the story unfolds, Joab's hopes came to be fulfilled. You might say Joab's work, uh, plans worked. He got the king to order Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. But did Joab's plans work well 
in the long run. Only a few verses later in the story, we find out that Joab's own impressions of Absalom changed quickly. When Joab began distancing himself from Absalom and ignored Absalom when he called him to come and, and speak to the king. Human wisdom may seem to work and will often lure us to devise clever plans to go forward, to get things done, to move in the right direction. But human wisdom cannot bring lasting change. Uh, manipulating situations, manipulating other people may work in changing people's behaviors or some direction, but it will not change in it will not work in changing people's hearts. As we will see, Joab was able to change David's decision about Absalom, but could not change David's heart about Absalom. Friends, ask yourself, are you, are you falling in, this, in the traps of human wisdom, employing clever plans, finding good solutions in dealing with sin's messiness? Do you seek to deal with the effects of sin around you or in your own life by pursuing human wisdom and clever plans? Do you seek those solutions to deal with the messes? In those situations, sin will be more like honey dripping in the wrong places. It will create more sticky and messy situations than truly a good, solid cleanup. The clever plans, they don't work. But there's other plans in the story. Uh, the, the second plan that we see in the story is the facade plan. That's David. The facade plan. David agrees to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. And Joab thanks the king as if the king did Joab a favor. And here Joab shows his hand. Notice, look at verse 22. Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. You see here how Joab thinks this is all his plan. And the king is doing him a favor to carry out his plan. Joab the fixer meets David the fixer. David too has some Good, fix-it mode plans. While Joab is quick to execute and bring Absalom back, when Absalom is finally back, we actually find out how David went into fix-it mode, humanly speaking. David's heart is exposed as still distant. Look at verse 24. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house, He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. How did David put on his fix-it mode in this situation? Well, David gave the impression to others that he's going to go on this reconciliation plan. He... Uh, he caved in to the pressure or he felt enough convicted to at least physically bring Absalom back. But on the inside, his heart was just as determined as before to keep Absalom away and apart. Just thinking, think about it. Imagine living in the same city and not seeing each other. And it's not been just the two years, but it's been also the three years prior to that. Five years, David has not seen Absalom. And when he comes back to town, after five years of not seeing him, David remains staunchly stubborn about not seeing his son. Is this reconciliation? Are things getting better between David and his son? They're not. But the facade, but the optics, politically speaking, relationally speaking, in the eyes of, of society, Absalom, the successor, is back in town. He lives in his own house. Oh, friends, 
this is what clever plans can turn to. Clever plans always work well with a game of pretending. Clever plans always have a good working relationship with pretending plans. Of saying, let's pretend for the sake of public image that everything is fine. But deep down, nothing has changed in the heart. And the point here is that human wisdom can cause some outward changes, but it cannot move the needle in our hearts. And human wisdom often will be satisfied with running the show for the sake of optics. Friends, in our society, there's a saying, fake it till you make it. And there are some good and positive uses of that phrase, if you use it, if you understand it appropriately. But oftentimes, what we actually realize is that that phrase is just used to keep you doing things and be okay with the facade. But the reality is, faking things doesn't make things. Faking things doesn't, doesn't actually fix things. Friends, are there ways in which you play the pretend game with the messy and sticky situations of life and of sin? Are you, are you, are you content and satisfied to just play the game of, of the facade, that the optics look fine? Sometimes we, are, we don't know how to dig deep into the heart issues. And sometimes we need the help of another trusted Christian friend to help us sort out through the, the difficult and thorny, uh, messy situations. Because in our own heart, sometimes we respond sinfully to those situations. And we need the help of another trusted friend uh, to work through those situations. Friends, don't fall for the facade plans. Clever plans work well with the facade plans. But here's another plan in this story, and that's a forceful plan. And we see this in Absalom. Absalom is, is finally back in Jerusalem. But before we're told what Absalom does now that he's back in Jerusalem, we are given an interesting picture of what he looks like. Very surprising. We get a picture of his physical appearance. Absalom is a good-looking dude. He's a stud. And not only he knows it, but all Israel knows it. I mean, look at verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised For his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot, the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. You know, this is a guy that mothers-in-law would love for their daughter to hook up with. He's He's the guy who's got the attention of the whole nation. He's popular. He's known. He's good looking. Absalom is without any external flaws. But his outward perfection was no guarantee that his heart was in the right place. As a matter of fact, if we've been reading the previous chapter, Absalom's heart had deep flaws. Earlier, he knew how to hide his hatred of Amnon until the right time came for him to kill his brother. But now, in this chapter, we see another flaw of Absalom's heart. He was aggressive. He was heavy-handed. He knew how to use intimidation and aggression and forcefulness to get his way and to accomplish his plans. He had called Joab to come in, and Joab didn't come once, didn't come twice. So what does Absalom do? He sets Joab's field on fire. Intimidating, intimidating and abusive behavior, destroying the property of his neighbor simply to take Joab, to get Joab to take the message to the king why he's not allowed to come in his presence. Absalom wants David to decide and to choose. Either Absalom is guilty and thus deserves to die, or he's innocent and thus he should be allowed to come into the king's presence. Absalom is determined to find out and to get his way. 
He knows how to get things done, even in the process, if he's hurting others and destroying what they have. Oh, friends, Absalom is a man with flawless looks, but a flawed heart. And no one would be able to tell the difference until he actually starts acting out some of his plans and schemes, his forcefulness, his heavy-handedness. Joab finally tells David, hey, listen, David, we cannot mess with this guy. Uh, so David caves in, gives into the pressure, and brings Absalom uh, into his presence. And Absalom finally, after five years, gets to see his dad. But on such weird terms. Under pressure, under manipulation. And what happened when they, meet, when they met? Look at verse 33. Then Joab went to the king, told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Absalom's bowing before the king is ironic in light of how forced he acted to get his way into the presence of the king. And David's kiss of Absalom is also ironic in light of all the determination David had to keep Absalom far and away for all these years. The narrator does not tell us if there are any words exchanged between these two people in this moment. They might have been, but the narrator did not record any of the dialogue if there's any words between them. Did they sort out the wounds? Did they work through the hurts that they had against each other? Did they truly reconcile? Did they understand each other and the, the accusations and the, what they had against each other? Or did they... Just do the polite thing. Bow down and kiss. What an awkward meeting. With no words recorded. As we will see in the next chapter, the outward reconciliation, what seemed like an outward reconciliation, did not compel Absalom to change his views about his father. David's kiss to Absalom may seem like Absalom and David are getting on better terms and that Absalom is back on track, reconciled with his father. But the reality is that Absalom's return, with Absalom's return, things didn't get better, but actually they got worse, as we will see. Absalom's return to Jerusalem and uh, his so-called reconciliation to David was not a sign of Absalom's advancement and of their reconciliation. This chapter is the preparation for the unfolding of David's judgment as God has determined against him. Friends, the plans of the wise, the plans of the external facade and the plans of, of forcefulness may bring some short-term successes but they don't accomplish the long-term changes that are needed. Human solutions to sin problems are short-lived. And the stability of David's kingdom uh, was not enhanced and made more secure by these plans. Something more was needed. Something deeper was needed. The future of David's kingdom was not dependent on Joab's plans. If anything, in the long haul... Joab realized that it was not such a good idea to bring Absalom back anyway. Joab distanced himself from Absalom in this very chapter. And we will see later in the next few chapters, it will be Joab who will actually kill Absalom. Joab's plans didn't work. His clever ploy to keep the kingdom secure to help David out, did not work. Friends, the long-term stability of David's kingdom will rest not on Joab's clever plans, not on David's facade plans, nor with Absalom's forceful plans. A king will come from David's line who will bring about a genuine, true, and deep reconciliation. His name 
is Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the reconciliation we need. That's a plan God the Father designed before this creation was ever made. So that, at the, that when the time came for, for sin to enter this corrupt world, God the Father already had the plan for His Son to be ready, filled with, his fullness of, with, a, with the fullness of God's presence in Him, to come to us and to reconcile us back to the Father. Friends, that's the gospel that we proclaim. Praise be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that in Christ you have provided the ultimate, the true, the only real solution to the messiness of sin. Father, we confess that in our own determination and in our own desires to get things fixed, we often complicate things when we try to fix sin's messiness around us or in us. Father, give us wisdom to recognize. Give us strength to, uh, to acknowledge and confess our own tendencies for human wisdom and human plans and human determination and to forsake those and submit ourselves to your plans and to walk with you, to live with you, to embrace Jesus, our Savior, who truly has the only plan to deal with our sinfulness. Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted in our hearts, that we would trust him and set our affections on him. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.